One who has you over his head, O Lord, how can he suffer any pain? This is the Bhajan Jisake Siryu Paratu Swami on page 160. Being intoxicated with Maya, he doesn't know how to speak and he doesn't remember death. Oh my Ram Rai, you are of the saints and the saints are yours. Your servant has no fear. Not even the angel of death can come near. Those who have died in your color, O Swami, their pain of birth and death has fled. No one can erase your blessing, O Lord. The Satguru has given this consolation. Those who meditate on Nam receive the fruit of happiness, and they remember you day and night. By coming in your shelter and your support, they control the five evils. I don't know any knowledge, contemplation, or deeds, and I don't know your greatness. Nanak says, Satguru is greatest of all. He has saved my honor. One who has you over his head, O Lord, how can he suffer any pain? Bhajan of Guru Arjan Dev on page 160. <laughs> Swami, 
The next bhajan is on page 252. Sawan Sawan Dunia Kendi. The world calls him Sawan. I am his intoxicated one. Very happily, laughing and laughing, he gave me the gift of immortal Kripal. Since I saw Sawan, I have hidden him in my eyes. I have never forgotten the way Sawan smiled. Sawan is beloved. Sawan is beautiful. Sawan is the owner of my heart. He was the radiant form who lives in the eyes. His style was unique. His glory was unique. Still I have not understood. Every day I cry. Every day I sing. People call me mad. White beard, broad forehead, tying a turban, he came. Even the fairies bow down to him, and the moon has come out in the sky. The world searches for him outside, but he has given everyone the slip. Let us all go to Sirsa, Kripal proclaimed. Ajayab also sang, Gracious Sawan has caused the drizzle to shower. Come, let us all have the darshan of the radiant form. The world calls him Sawan. I am his intoxicated one. Laughing and laughing, he gave me the gift of immortal Kripal. Bhajan of Sanchi on page 252. Sawan, Sawan, Dunia, Kendi, Meodima, Sitani, Hansida, Hansida, Dehigia, Menu, Kirpala, Maranishani, Sawana Sawana Dunia Kendi Meodima Sitani Hansida Hansida Degia Menu Kipala Maranishani Sawana Sawana Dunia Jada da sawana najeriya palakavicha lukaya ajeta kena sakia jo sawana musikaya jada da sawana najeriya Palaka vicha lukaya Ajeta kanabula hisakia Josawana musikaya Sawana piara sawana sona Sawana piara sawana sona Sawana Dilbar Jani Hanseda Hanseda Degi Amenu 
kirpal marnishani sawan sawan duniya kendi meyoti masitani hansida hansida degiya menu kirpal marnishani sawan sawan duniya kendi o sie kanurani chehera ankavichas maya chojnirali shananirali aj samajna aya o sie kanurani chehera ankavichas maya chojnirali shananirali aj samajna aya nitahirova nitahigava nitahirova nitahigava lokahina divani hansida hansida degiya menu kirpal marnishani sawan sawan duniya kendi meyodi masitani hansida hansida degiya menu kirpal marnishani sawan sawan duniya kendi chiti dari choda matha pagari ban saj aaya pariyata kaunu saj de kar diya chanvi ambar chadaya chiti dari choda matha magari ban saj aaya pariyata kaunu saj de kar diya chanviyan barachadaya duniya ohnu bahar labdi duniya ohnu bahar labdi degiya ki tech khani hansida hansida degiya menu kirpal marnishani sawan sawan duniya kendi meyodi masitani hansida hansida degiya menu 
ਕਿਰਪਾਲ ਅਮਰ ਨਿਹਿਸ਼ਾਨੀ ਸਾਵਨ ਸਾਵਨ ਦੁਨੀਆ ਕੇਂਦੀ ਚੇਲੋ ਨਿਸੇਓ ਸਿਰ ਸਾਨੂ ਚਾਲੀਏ ਕਿਰਪਾਲ ਨੇ ਹੋ ਕਲਾਇਆ ਸਾਵਨ ਦਿਆਲੂ ਨੇ ਰੀਮ ਜੀਮ ਲਾਈ ਅਜਾਇ ਬਨੇ ਵੀ ਗਾਇਆ ਚੇਲੋ ਨਿਸੇਓ ਸਿਰ ਸਾਨੂ ਚਾਲੀਏ ਕਿਰਪਾਲ ਨੇ ਹੋ ਕਲਾਇਆ ਸਾਵਨ ਦਿਆਲੂ ਨੇ ਰੀਮ ਜੀਮ ਲਾਈ ਕਿਰਚਾਇ ਬਨੇ ਵੀ ਗਾਇਆ ਆਵੋ ਸਭ ਹੀ ਦਰਸ਼ਨ ਕਰੀਏ ਆਵੋ ਸਭ ਹੀ ਦਰਸ਼ਨ ਕਰੀਏ ਓ ਸੂਰਤ ਦੁਰਾਨੀ ਹੰਸ ਦਾ ਹੰਸ ਦਾ ਗਈ ਗਿਆ ਮੈਨੂੰ ਕਿਰਪਾਲ ਮਰ ਨਿਸ਼ਾਨੀ ਸਾਵਨ ਸਾਵਨ ਦੁਨੀਆ ਕੇਂਦੀ ਮੇਓ ਦੀ ਮਸਤਾਨੀ ਹੰਸ ਦਾ ਹੰਸ ਦਾ ਦੇ ਗਿਆ ਮੈਨੂੰ ਕਿਰਪਾਲ ਮਰ ਨਿਸ਼ਾਨੀ ਸਾਵਨ ਸਾਵਨ ਦੁਨੀਆ ਕੇਂਦੀ The world calls him Sawan I am his intoxicated one Laughing and laughing he gave me the gift of immortal Kapal There will be a one half day meditation retreat on New Year's Day at Chris and Jeanette's house starting at 3 a.m. and ending at 12:30 p.m. that's on new year's day and my next class will be on january 23 2010 i want to read today a section from the master kripal's masterpiece the crown of life which is very seldom read at satsang and I think it is of the utmost importance. It's a section that has been extremely helpful to me over the years and I think if we can understand it and grasp it that many things will become easier. I will after reading this section I'll read another section from the same book which has to do with love. So if if you get bored or tired of the intellectuality of this section remember that something on love is coming this is chapter 4 called advaitism and advaitism the advaita vedanta as it's called in india is the philosophy of non-dualism or monism and master explains it in these few pages as well as it has ever been explained in my view and he gives it a 
very thorough ringing endorsement as the basic truth of the universe. And it was Shankara, also known as Shankaracharya. Acharya is a title meaning teacher who taught the philosophy of Advaitism in its, that is to say, who made it a philosophy, who made it intellectually consistent and uh, explained how everything else fits into it, even though it, of course, was around a long time before that. It is basically the philosophy of the Upanishads. So Master says in this book, yoga is as timeless as Brahman itself. As with every fresh cycle, man comes to an awareness of the all-pervading, he tries to discover the means for realizing it. It was Hiranyagarbha, we are told, who first taught yoga or the divine way, but it was his successors, Gotapada and Patanjali, who developed it into a regular system. As we have already seen in the foregoing chapter, all true yoga begins with a dualistic assumption but ends in a non-dualistic one. It is not surprising, therefore, that many students of the inner science should have been confounded by this paradox. As time passed, confusion led to controversy, and a half-truth was often mistaken for the full truth. It was at such a time that Shankara, the prodigy from South India, arose to preach the true philosophy of Advaitism. He was gifted with amazing powers of reasoning, logic, and insight, and few have attained to the depth, subtlety, and consistency of vision that are to be found in Shankara's writing. Taking up all the great scriptures as they came down from the past, he unequivocally interpreted their meaning and established their identity of substance. He showed that the reality was one, and in its ultimate analysis could not tolerate any pluralism or dualism. An individual jiva might begin as distinct from the Brahman, but by the time he had attained full realization, he would have realized his oneness with the Absolute the all-pervading. Armed with clairvoyant intellectual power, he swept Indian thought clean of all the seeming contradictions that were clogging its free development. We may now examine some of the basic concepts that he taught. Self, the basis of conscious life. Shankara regarded the empirical life of the individual consciousness as nothing but a waking dream, and as any other dream, an unreal substance. Its unreality comes to light when one travels from limited to cosmic consciousness or contemplates the relative nature of physical consciousness as it varies from waking, jagadat, to dream, svapan, and from dream to dreamlessness, sashupti. If empirical experience is relative in character, 
wherein lies its reality. The answer provided by Shankara is that it is to be sought in the thinking mind, which in turn only reflects the light of the Atman, the eternal self, the unchanging, the absolute, the real witness, Sakshi. The principle of causality is just a condition of knowledge. The objects appear to be real so long as we work within the limits of cause and effect. The moment we rise above these limitations, all objects vanish into airy nothings. In the true nature of reality, there is no place for causation, because causal explanations are always incomplete and ultimately lead nowhere. The objects momentarily appear as bubbles or ripples on the surface of the water and disappear the next moment into the water and are no more. Water alone remains the real substratum of the whole phenomenon. In just the same way, the real contains and transcends the phenomenal and is free from all relationships of time, space, and cause. The entire world lives in the mind of man, and it is the movement of the conscious mind that produces the distinctions of perception, the perceiver, and the perceived, a differentiation where, in fact, there is none as everything is part of the vast ocean of unity. This state does not recognize the distinctions of knower, known, and knowledge, all of which are but relative terms with with no finality about them. Similarly, the three states of the human experience, waking, dreaming, and the dreamless, are unreal, for none of them lasts long enough, and each gives place to the other in turn, as the mind passes from state to state. Each of them has a beginning and an end, and exists only in the absence of the others. The term relativity, in itself, implies its antithesis, the reality, and beyond the three states specified above lies the Atman, as the basis of them all. It alone is and constantly remains behind the ever-changing panorama of life, the ever-unborn, eternally awake, the dreamless and self-illumined, by its very nature a pure cognition distinct from the non-cognition of the sleep state. The Nature of Creation Creation as such does not exist per se. The actual and the real is ever the same and is not subject to change. The unconditioned cannot be conditioned as infinity cannot be finitized. All that is is Brahman, and there can be nothing apart from the absolute unity. It projects itself into varying forms, which are an expression of its power. 
But if we perceive them in terms of plurality or duality and of limitation, it is not that such qualities inhere in the absolute, but that our own perception is limited by the narrow, everyday human consciousness. He who has passed from avidya to vidya, from ignorance to knowledge, knows the world of the relative to be only maya or illusion and sees the absolute in everything, just as he who knows the true nature of ice sees it only as another form of water. The power of the absolute, popularly known as Ishvar and called the creator, is the root cause of all consciousness The world of plurality or duality is mere maya, an instrument for measuring things on the level of the intellect, while the real one is non-dual and hence is at once measureless and immeasurable. To use the well-known simile, the variety subsists in the Atman as does a snake in the rope or a ghost in the stump of a tree. As an empirical experience is neither identical with the Atman, nor exists apart from or independent of the Atman, so the world is neither one with the Atman nor separate from it. Atman is one and universal, unconditioned and limitless like space. But when conditioned by mind and matter, it looks like Gat Akash, or space enclosed in a pitcher, yet becomes one with the universal space when the pitcher breaks apart. All the differences, then, are but in name, capacity, and form. The Jiva and the Atman are one and of the same essence. Kabir, speaking of it, says that the spirit is part and parcel of Ram, or the all-pervading power of God. The Muslim divines also describe it, Ru, as Amar-i-Rabbi, or the fiat of God. While the jiva is conditioned and limited by the limiting adjuncts, physical, mental, and causal, the Atman or the disembodied jiva, freed from these finitizing adjuncts, is limitless and unconditioned. The self or Atman. The basis of truth lies in self-certainty. And self here, of course, is spelt with a capital S because it is translation of Atman. Jiva and Atman are two terms that are used sometimes interchangeably by the masters to refer to the soul or the spirit, but they are different. Jiva refers to the spirit as confined or bound by mind and matter. That is what we experience as consciousness in our present state is Jiva. Atman is that same consciousness unbound free, unaffected by time, space, causation, physical, mental, causal, etc. So that when the Atman is referred to as 
in English, it is called the self with a capital S, are sometimes the over-self. Masters have used all both those terms. And the jiva is usually referred to as self with a small s or as ego. Atman, self with a large s, is understood as identical with Brahman. Both terms refer to the absolute. Brahman usually refers to the absolute in its universal aspect, Atman in its individual aspect, but in reality they are both the same. So the basis of truth lies in self-certainty. The self, capital S, precedes everything else in the world. It comes even before the stream of consciousness and all concepts of truth and untruth, reality and unreality, and before all considerations, physical, moral, and metaphysical. Consciousness, knowledge, wisdom, and understanding presuppose some kind of energy known as self, capital S, to which all these are subservient. And, in fact, they flow from it. All physical and mental faculties, even the vital airs or pranas and empirical experiences, appear in the light of the shining self, capital S, the self-illuminated Atman. They all have a purpose and an end that lie far deeper than themselves and which form the springboard for all kinds of activity, whether physical, mental, or supramental. All these, however, fail to grasp the real nature of the self, capital S, being themselves in a state of continuous flux. Self being the basis of all proof and existing before proof cannot be proved. How can the knower be known and by whom? Self is in fact the essential nature of everyone, even that of the atheist. This self then, capital S, is eternal, immutable, and complete, and in its essence is ever the same at all times, under all conditions, and in all states. The nature of self. Though we know that the self exists, yet we do not know what it is, for knowledge itself follows the self and is due to and because of the self. The true nature of the self may, however, be comprehended by the self if it could be stripped of all the enshrouding sheaths of senses, mind, understanding, and will in which it is clothed and covered. What is then left is variously described as undifferentiated consciousness, eternal knowledge, or pure awareness, and is characterized by the light of the great void. It is the supreme principle whose essential nature is self-effulgence. It is infinite, transcendental, and the essence of absolute knowledge. It has three attributes of sat, chit, and anand, that is, pure existence, pure knowledge, and pure bliss. As the self is complete in itself and by itself, it has no activity of its own, 
nor has any need for it, nor requires any outside agency. All-pervading and self-existent, it knows no limits and no motives. Individual knowledge and consciousness. Though the ultimate reality is the non-dual spirit, yet determinate knowledge and empirical experience presuppose the existence of one, the knower, or the subject that knows apart from the internal organ behind the senses and the object known. The knowing mind is but a reflecting mirror that reflects the luminosity of the Atman in which knowledge grows. Two, the process of knowledge as determined by modifications in the internal organ. Vrittis or undulations creating ripples and bubbles in the stream of consciousness. These vrittis are of four kinds. The indeterminate, manas, or the mind stuff. The determinate, buddhi, or intelligent will. Self-sense, ahankar, or the self-assertive ego. And the subconscious, chit, or the deep and hidden potencies. Three, the object known through the light of the Atman as reflected by the internal organ, Antakaran. Knowledge and its sources. Knowledge is of two kinds, ultimate and final, or empirical and relative. Knowledge in its ultimate reality is a state of being and never grows. It is already there and is revealed by the light of the Atman, which transcends at once both the subject apprehending and the object apprehended, beyond which there is nothing. True knowledge is purely an action of the soul and is perfect in itself and independent of the senses and the sense organs. An all-knowing mind, says Professor J. M. Murray, embraces the totality of being under the aspect of eternity. As we gain our entrance into the world of being, a total vision is ours. According to Shankara, highest knowledge is the immediate witness of reality itself. For then, the knower and the known become one reality. But the real self, which is pure awareness, cannot be the object of knowledge. The empirical knowledge of the external world is just like animal knowledge. It is based on and derived from the sense organs, and as such has forms and modes, all of which are conspicuous by their absence from true knowledge. But nothing becomes real till it is experienced. Even a proverb is no proverb until it is illustrated in actual life and practice. All empirical knowledge is revealed either by perception or by scriptural testimony. The human perception has never been considered true, perfect, and accurate. One may see a snake in a rope or a ghost in the stump of a tree. 
Generally, things are not what they seem to be. The colors of things we see are those that are not absorbed by them, but are rejected and thrown out. The redness of the rose is not part of the rose, but something alien to it. Again, inference and scriptural testimony are not altogether infallible. The source of inference is previous experience, which is itself fallible, and even if it were not, situations in the present may not wholly fit in with the knowledge gained in the past. This is the case even with intuition, which is the sum total of all experience in the subconscious. A cloud of smoke on the top of a distant hill may be indicative of fire or it may be a sheet of fog. Similarly, scriptural testimony, though admitted as an infallible and certain source of knowledge, cannot always be treated as such. The Vedas, which constitute the divine knowledge, appear and disappear with the rise and dissolution of each cycle of time. They are supposed to be an inexhaustible mine of universal and ideal knowledge. But the term knowledge implies a record of spiritual experiences gained at the supersensory planes. The moment the experiences thus gained are translated into human language and reduced to writing, they acquire form and method. And the moment they acquire form and method, they lose their freshness and life, their quality of limitless being. That which cannot be limited or defined begins to be treated as something defined and limited, and instead of the scriptures giving vital knowledge, they tend to distract men from it by offering only abstractions. At best, they can only point toward the truth, but they can never give it. The concepts of the universal as contained therein remain as mere concepts, for they can neither be received, inferred, nor correctly communicated. They begin to have meaning only when one learns to rise above the empirical plane and experiences truth for himself. From the above, one comes to the irresistible conclusion that seeing or direct and immediate perception is above all proof and testimony. It is seeing in the pure light of the Atman, which is free from even the least shadow of correlativity. It is nothing but a direct, integral experience of the soul. Shruti, or revealed scripture, without first-hand inner experience, is sound without sense. All flights of thought, imagination, or fancy, and all empirical knowledge are inadequate and cannot do justice to truth or the ultimate reality. Anubhava is verily the real and absolute knowledge and is knowledge of the absolute. It is the self-certifying experience of the soul which bears testimony to the recorded spiritual experience of the sages as given in the Shrutis. The nature of Brahman. The very idea of finitude implies the existence of the infinite, 
as does the word unreal of something real, the basis of all intelligence and imagination. Again, we have the overwhelming testimony of scriptural texts, which speak of religious experiences of all seers at all times and in all places. The nature of Brahman cannot be expressed in words. It is the foundation of all that exists. It spreads everywhere and at the same time is nowhere in relation to anything particular. It is a paradox at once of being and non-being. There are two ways of looking at the problem, the negative way and the positive way. There is God, the incomprehensible absolute, and God who actually creates, works, and is the first cause, and is known variously as the Logos, or the Holy Spirit, the Kalma, or the Bangikadim, the Nad, or the Udgit, the Nam, or the Shabbat. The latter terms indicate the life principle, the word or the power of God, that is imminent and vibrates everywhere from the highest to the lowest in the universe. It is both the material and the efficient cause of the world. It is the principle of truth and the spirit of God, God in action or ekankar. Of this power of God, the Gospels tell us that the light shineth in darkness and the darkness comprehendeth it not. This power of Brahman, Ishvar or Godhead, is the medium between Brahman and the universe and partakes of the nature of both. But his oneness is not affected by self-expression into many. Eka aham bahusiam. The two exist as reality and appearance, and the difference arises because of the limited insight in man. To sum up, the supreme reality is the basis of the world as we know it, speak of it, and see it. The plurality or diversity in unity is the result of erroneous judgment. The world is unreal but not a subjective illusion. The absolute is in the world but the world is not the absolute, for a shadow cannot take the place of the substance. A thing based on the real cannot be the real itself. The world is but the phenomenal truth and not the essential truth of the reality or the centripetal force at the core of it. The individual self is a complexity of likes and dislikes, preferences and prejudices, purposes and projects, memories and associations. The conditioned jiva is essentially the unconditioned atman. This empirical self or the individual understanding is, through ignorance of its own real nature, the active doer, the enjoyer, and the sufferer in the pure light of the atman of which it has no knowledge nor any experience. Enclosed in the physical body composed of five elements, ether, air, fire, water, and earth, is the subtle body consisting of 17 elements, five organs of perception, eyes, ears, nose, tongue, and skin, 
five of action, sight, hearing, smell, taste, and touch, the five vital airs or pranas, and manas and buddhi, and also the causal or seed body. The self follows the inexorable law of karma as it migrates from one body to another on the giant wheel of life. These limiting adjuncts, the physical, mental, and causal, reduce the Atman to the level of a jiva, individual consciousness, and determine its fate, taking it into endless gyres. In the core of the jiva is the witnessing self, capital W and S, that merely looks on and sheds luster on the entire stage, and while illumining the ego, mind, senses, and the sense objects, continues to shine in its own light, even when the stage is cleared. It is against this illumined silver screen that the whole show takes place. The attainment of the state where the Atman knows itself for what it is and realizes that it is not but Brahman is the goal of Advaitism. This state is one of direct experience, and as Shankara has made abundantly clear, it cannot be attained merely by ratiocination, the reading of scriptures, or the performance of rituals. It can come only through the pursuit of yoga. And the essential thing to be remembered is that Advaitism by itself is not a yoga, but strictly speaking, represents the philosophy of yoga at its subtlest and profoundest. Shankara, as he himself clarified, was not speaking of something new. He was engaged in the task of reformulating what had already been expressed in the Upanishads and the Gita. Endowed with an extraordinary intellect and an amazing flair for logic, he set about restating in a coherent and systematic form the insight embedded in the Shrutis, which in subsequent times had been confused and led to much needless controversy. He demonstrated once and for all that any approach to Brahman which did not preach the non-pluralistic and non-dualistic reality was in its very nature illogical, and that Advaitism was in fact the logical conclusion of yogic thought. Implicit in this approach was the view that of all states of samadhi, the one in which the individual Atman lost its identity in the Brahman, called Nirvakalp Samadhi, was the highest. This state was to be attained here and now, and one could be free in this life, Jivan Mukta. He who had plumbed beneath the phenomenal to the absolute would never again be taken in by appearances. He was a liberated spirit living in the light of true knowledge. Past actions might carry him onward through physical existence, but once these were exhausted, he was absorbed wholly into the Brahman, the pure cognition. Shankara was indeed a remarkable man of learning and insight, and his contribution to Indian thought is permanent. In carrying it to its logical conclusion, he gave it the brilliance of consistent clarity. 
But just as ritual and scripture cannot be a substitute for direct inner experience, likewise merely knowing that the self and the Brahman are one cannot take the place of an actual experience of this union. The philosophy of yoga is not the same thing as yoga. At best, it can only clear our thinking of its present confusion and point out the final goal to be attained. But the rest must remain a matter of practical and personal realization through yoga. And I want to read a section in conclusion, a section from the chapter on Sudhat Shabad Yoga in the same book. This is a section called The Master. And it is the final part of that section. Cryptic words of the God-man very often baffle human understanding. His behests at times may apparently sound contrary to the scriptural texts or ethical injunctions, but in reality they are not. One should follow them in full faith, and in due time their true significance will be revealed. Just before this section, uh, the Master has talked about how it is important to be critical and discriminating when we search for a perfect Master. But then, once we have found one, and he says, and he who is a genuine seeker will never fail, such is the divine decree, that it is important then to relate to him through devotion, not through criticism and discrimination. Once we are satisfied that he is indeed a perfect master, then in order to get from him what he has to give, we have to relate to him that way. Like the child's should be the devotee's love, full of humility and simplicity. The purity of its flame alone shall burn away the dross of the world. Kindle the fire of love and burn all things. Then set thy foot unto the land of the lovers. Baha'u'llah. Weld into one the vessel, which is now fragmented into a thousand parts, so that it may be fit to contain the light of God. It is the link between the seeker and his friend, and through him between the seeker and the absolute. How can one love the nameless and formless, but through him who is his true embodiment? For as the Lord revealed to Muhammad. I dwell neither high nor low, neither in the sky nor on the earth, nor even in paradise. O beloved, believe me, strange as it may seem, I dwell in the heart of the faithful, and it is there that I may be found. Rumi On this mystic path, reasoning is the help, but reasoning is also the hindrance. Love alone can bridge the gulf, span the chasm, and knit the finite to the infinite, the mortal to the immortal, the relative to the absolute. Such love is not of this world or of this flesh. It is the call of soul unto soul, of like unto like, the purgatory and the paradise. Who shall describe its ecstasy? Speak not of Leila's or of Majnun's woe. 
Thy love hath put to naught the loves of long ago. Sadi. Live free of love, for its very peace is anguish. Arabian poem. A million speak of love, yet how few know. True love is not to lose remembrance even for an instant. Kabir. Indeed, it is the quality of ceaseless remembrance that is of the essence of love. He who remembers in such fashion must need to live in perpetual remembrance of his beloved's commandments and in perpetual obedience. Such love burns in its fire the dross of the ego. The little self is forgotten, and the lover surrenders his individuality at the altar of his beloved. If thou wouldst journey on the road of love, first learn to humble thyself unto dust. Ansari of Herat Love grows not in the field and is not sold in the market. Whosoever would have it, whether king or beggar, must pay with his life. Carry your head upon your palm as an offering if you would step into the wonderland of love. Kabir Again, accursed be the life wherein one finds not love for the Lord. Give your heart to his servant, for he shall take you to him. Such self-surrender is only a prelude to the inheriting of a larger and purer self than we otherwise know, capital S, for such is the potency of its magic that whosoever shall knock at its door shall be transformed into its own color. A lover becomes the beloved. Such is the alchemy of his love. God himself is jealous of such a beloved. Dadu. Calling on Ranja, I myself become one with him. Bulisha. It is of such a love that Lord Krishna spoke in the Gita and of such a love that St. Paul preached to his listeners. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. St. Paul. It is of this that the Sufis speak when they talk of Fana Fil Sheikh, annihilation in the Master. The vast expanse of myself is so filled to overflowing with the fragrance of the Lord that the very thought of myself has completely vanished. It is of this that the Christian mystics declare when they stress the necessity of death in Christ. Without such self-surrender, learning by itself can be of little avail. Learning is only a child of the scriptures. It is love that is their mother. Persian poem. The world is lost in reading scriptures, yet never comes to knowledge. But one who knows a jot of love, to him all is revealed. Kabir. Such love alone is the key to the inner kingdom. He that loveth not knoweth not God, 
for God is love, St. John. The secret of God's mysteries is love, Rumi. By love may he be gotten and holden, but by thought never, the cloud of unknowing. Verily, verily, I say unto thee that only they that have loved have reached the Lord. Gobind Singh. And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. St. John. We love him because he first loved us. St. John. The rela- this relationship of love between the Satguru and his Shishya, the God-man and his disciple, covers many phases and many developments. It begins with respect for one knowing more than oneself. As the disciple begins to appreciate the master's disinterested solicitude for his welfare and progress, his feelings begin to soften with the dew of love, and he begins to develop faith, obedience, and reverence. With greater obedience and faith comes greater effort, and with greater effort comes greater affection from the Master. Effort and grace go hand in hand, and each in turn helps in development of the other. Like the mother's love for her children, is the love of the divine shepherd for his flock. It does not discriminate between the deserving and the undeserving, but like the mother, the depths and treasures of his love are unlocked only to those who respond and return his love. He is with all alike, yet each gets his share according to his own deserts. Guru Amardas. With his greater effort and the greater grace from the Master, the disciple makes increased headway in his inner sadness, leading finally to complete transcendence of bodily consciousness. When this transcendence has been achieved, he beholds his guru waiting in his radiant form to receive and guide his spirit on the inner planes. Now, for the first time, he beholds him in his true glory and realizes the unfathomable dimensions of his greatness. Henceforth, he knows him to be more than human, and his heart overflows with songs of praise and humble devotion. The higher he ascends in his spiritual journey, the more insistent is he in his praise for the more intensely does he realize that he whom he once took to be a friend is not merely a friend, but God himself come down to raise him up to himself. This bond of love with its development by degrees becomes the mirror of his inward progress, moving as it does from the finite to the infinite. Love begins in the flesh and ends in the spirit. St. Bernard. At its initial phase, it may find analogies in earthly love, that between the parent and the child, friend and friend, lover and beloved, teacher and pupil. But once it has reached the point where the disciple discovers his teacher in his luminous glory within himself, 
All analogies are shattered and all comparisons forever left behind. All that remains is a gesture and then silence. Let us write some other way love secrets, better so. Leave blood and noise and all of these and speak no more of Shamus Tabriz. Rumi. If we get to meet the servants of the Sadhguru, then what they will explain to us, what they will tell us, they will tell us to develop more love for the Master, for the Sadhguru, and they will inspire us, they will encourage us to connect ourselves with the Sadhguru, because they have the love for the Sadhguru. Kabir Sahib led a lot of emphasis on doing the simran, on attending the satsang, on doing the meditation. Because when we go to the satsang and we meet the other humans, and when we see them doing the meditation, we also become fond of doing the meditation because we know that a melon changes its color in the company of the other melon. So when we go in the company of those who do the devotion of Lord, our mind also feels like doing the same, and then we also try to follow them and do the meditation. Who will respect the beloved of God? Only He who does the devotion, only He goes within, and only He who is united, who is only he who is connected with the master. Dilawal mala panwa panna asvata Tel karo tere taas ki Paag Guru Arjan Devi Maharaj is making a request in front of God Almighty. He says that, Oh Lord, you make me meet your servant, make me meet your beloved one, so that I am a servant. Tere <laughs> 
He says that instead of putting the mat under his feet, I will place my head under his feet because he has connected me with the Naam. because he was a very devoted soul and he always used to yearn for God 
realization. So when his karmas were awakened and when the desire to do the devotion of God came within him, he asked for the master and he was told that in India there is a master, Kabir Saad is his name, and he is the only one who can connect you with the Nama and he can give you the experience, he can make you realize God. So it is said that he gave up his kingdom, he gave up all his comforts and everything, he left his kingdom, Palak Bukhara, and he came to India. He went to Kabir Saab and asked him for his grace. Kabir Saab asked him that who he was. He replied that I am a king of Palak Bukhara and I have come to you to get the knowledge of God. Kabir Saab said that you know that I am a poor weaver and you are a king. How will you be able to live with me because I do not have any palaces and I don't have even good food, the food you are used to eat. King of Balak Bukhara said that since I have come to you for getting the knowledge of God, I do not mind sleeping on the mat. Whatever dry or whatever food you will give to me, I will accept that and I will help you in your work and whatever you will want me to do, I will do that. But you finally give me the knowledge of God. So it is said that uh, Kabir Saad allowed him to stay with him and it is mentioned in the history that King of Balak Bukhara served Kabir Saad wholeheartedly for six years and uh, he would do whatever Kabir Saab would ask him to do and whatever Kabir Saab would give him to eat, he would be content in that. He would also help him in his work as a weaver and he served him very much. So towards the end of the six years, Mata Loi, who used to also live with Kabir Saab, because she was very much impressed by the devotion and the seva which King of Balakpukhara used to do to Kabir Saab and to Mata Loi also. So she recommended King of Balakpukhara for initiation to Kabir Saab and she said that you should give him something because he is a king and he has left his kingdom and is staying with you, he is doing so much seva so you should give him something because it has been a long time since he has been here and he has been serving you. Kabir Saab said that no, it is not the appropriate time because still the vessel is not ready. But Matavoy said that how do I believe that? Because I see that whatever I ask him to do, he does it, he is so humble and he is doing so much seva to you and I can't understand why you don't want to give him the initiation. So Kabir Saab said, okay, I'll tell you one thing, you do one thing, you take some skin of the vegetables and you take some dry salt and things like that, and when I will call him towards me, you stand on the balcony and you throw those things on his head and then wait for his reaction. So when Mataloi did that, King of Balak Bukhara got so upset and he said that well if you had done this in Balak Bukhara I would have given you the punishment and since he was so much upset he said many other things and uh, Mataloi was very surprised because until then she had only seen him as a very humble devoted servant and she was very surprised because she was not expecting King of Balak Bukhara to react like that. So then she was convinced that he was not yet ready for the initiation. It is mentioned in the history that six more years passed like that. He continued being in the service of Kabisab and he did all what Kabisab wanted him to do. So, but since Mata Loi had already had that experience, so she did not want to recommend him again to Kabisab for the initiation because she was afraid that he may be the same. But once Kabisab himself suggested that he will get the initiation or he, he will become the devotee. And he told Mataloi that now the vessel is ready. Mataloi said that, but how do I believe now that he is ready? Because I don't see any change in him outwardly and who knows that what he is like 
So Kabir Sahib said that, okay, last time you had thrown some uh, skin of the vegetables and things like that on him, but this time you should throw on him very dirty rubbish and whatever dirt you can find, you can you may throw on him and then wait for the reaction. So when she did that, this time instead of getting upset, he said that, may God bless you, the one who has thrown this rubbish on me because I am more dirty than this rubbish and this is the only way I can bring my mind into control. He was so humble that he did not mind that somebody had thrown the rubbish on his chest. So then Kabir Sahib said that now he's ready. So then he got the initiation. Now you know that if you have spent so much time in the company of the Master and if you have devoted yourself so much to the Master and if you have remained in the service of the Master for such a long time, the vessel gets prepared. So when, if there is a Master like Kabir Sahib and if there is a disciple, of, disciple like King of Balad Bukhara, you can very well imagine that how that initiation would be. So when Kabisa was explaining the theory and the practices to King of Bukhara, because he was already prepared, his soul was already very purified. So as Kabisa went on explaining the theory to him, his soul went on progressing towards such time. A closing bhajan is on page 203. Kipalya hi sandesha data. And as we contemplate the words of this bhajan as we sing them, we can notice, perhaps, that every single theme that we have touched on in the satsang today, and for that matter, satsang most any time, is included in this bhajan, including the definition of love as constant remembrance, including the oneness of the universe, and including just about anything else that we talked about. Kripal gave only this message, and even the wind also teaches us this. If you keep walking while doing the Simran, the destination comes to you by itself. And that line could be translated equally well. If you keep walking while remembering God, the destination comes to you by itself. Because Simran means, as Kripal explained many times, the sweet remembrance of God. The fort of deceit will be destroyed in this world because walls of sand do not last. There are so many sins with you. You are a great sinner. Hail the power of almighty Kripal who carries all the burden. No one is an enemy no one belongs to anyone else. Everyone is your very own. For as the Gurbani teaches, all this world was created from one light. O Guru Kripal, the negative power trembles, and death also is nervous in front of whomever has caught hold of your finger. Ajayb says, Apologize to Kripal if your soul wants happiness. Kripal gave only this message, and even the wind also teaches us this. If you keep walking while doing the Simran, the destination comes to you by itself. Bhajan of Sanchi on page 203. Kipalayahi sandesha deta 
भावया ही सिकलाहती है सिमरन करते चले चलो तो मंजिल कुरमिर जाती है
जो भी है सब अपना है एक नूर से सब चादा उपजो गुरबानी बतलाती है एक नूर से सब चादा उपजो गुरबानी बतलाती है सिमरन करते चले चलो तो मंजिल कूट मिल जाती है किरपाल यही संदेश देता अवयही सिकलाती है सिमरन करते चले चलो तो मंजिल कूट मिल जाती है गुरु के पाल तुम्हारी उंगली ताम्रा की है जिसने भी गुरु के पाल तुम्हारी उंगली ताम्रा की है जिसने भी उसके आगा काल का पता और मुठ गबराती है अजाय के पाल तो मंगला मापी अजाय के पाल तो मंगला मापी चेचिंदरी सुकचाती है सिमरन करते चले चलो तो मंजिल कूट मिल जाती है किरपाल यही संदेश देता हवयाही सिकलाती है सिमरन करते चले चलो तो मंजिल कूट मिल जाती है Kripal gave only this message, and even the wind also teaches us this. If you keep walking while doing the Simran, the destination comes to you by itself. May God bless us all.